Acts chapter 24. It's our text this morning. I've already spent my handkerchief. Acts 24 provides us with a unique opportunity, that being to evaluate our witness, but from the perspective of the unbeliever. In our story, Paul is making a defense again, this time before Felix, kind of a regional Roman leader. Felix is familiar with followers of Jesus. He's married to a Jew, a woman who had been married before, and he kind of swiped her away. Uh, Drusilla is the daughter of Herod who killed James, granddaughter of Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus. So this is the judge in the case. He is not a follower of Jesus himself. He's known historically as a pretty wicked man. You have the story then before us as the Jews travel from Jerusalem to the coast of Caesarea, and they make their case against Paul. Number one, he stirs up riots. Number two, he's a ringleader of a cult. Number three, he tried to profane the temple. And then the text answers with Paul's defense, which follows that same outline. In a sense, Paul replies, no, I don't. No, I'm not. No, I didn't. And then we have kind of the closing paragraph of a little bit of conversation while Paul was kept in prison. It's a unique text. Uh, I originally thought maybe we'll just lump this together with the next chapter because it's just more defense before a different ruler. But looking at some of the details in chapter 24, I think they help us understand how Felix, an unbelieving Roman governor, would have perceived this Jewish believer that stood before him. How he would have viewed this man, how he would have understood something about Paul and what drove him forward. So from our text... I want us to see how Felix perceived the life and the faith of the Apostle Paul so that we can then ask ourselves, how is my Christianity perceived by those around me? Think of it, young people. How are your classmates viewing your faith, your statement that, perhaps as simple as you go to church on Sunday or you were at your youth group and, and they begin to associate something with you. They start shaping a, an opinion about what a Christian is. Many of us have co-workers, perhaps. And they know you're a Christian. They know you're some kind of person of faith. And we need to be asking ourselves, what is their perception what have they learned from me? What have they seen in me? Our neighbors see us come and go, especially on Sundays. Maybe they're out walking and you drive by and wave and, you know, we're all dressed up and there they are in their sweatpants and sneakers. And what are they thinking? What do they know of us? What is their perception of this religious way of life? Well, this is our theme this morning. You must consider how your Christian witness is perceived. 
so that you can be sure you are giving the right opinion of God. So that you represent God's character rightly. So that when they hear you're a Christian, they associate Christianity with what they see in you. And that accurately represents our Savior and our God. So your notes are shaped by seven questions. Questions to help us understand how an unbeliever might perceive our faith. I suppose you could read over these questions after this morning and ask yourself, how am I doing in each of these questions? Come up with your own little score system and figure out where could I do better at representing God to the world? They may not see him clearly, but they should be able to see something of his character in each one of us. It's the power of our witness. The witness of our words, yes, but also the witness of our lives. And so how is your Christian witness perceived? Question number one, is your witness concerned with truth? Truth. This first question summarizes the whole transcript of the trial. It's recorded for us. The prosecution stands and they make their case. The defense rises and with a nod from the governor, Paul proceeds with his defense and it's all written down there for us. We, we have the record. And in that record, Paul is clear about their misrepresentation of the facts. He insists on evidence, witnesses to validate their claims. In essence, Paul is saying these are false accusations and he meets them with a call for what is true and right. Verse 10, Paul speaks of being ready to make his defense. Verse 11, he tells Felix, you can verify these things. Verse 13, he says, neither can they prove these things. Verse 20, in essence, he asks, where are the witnesses? Let these men themselves come and say these things. It's all these avenues that a lawyer would use to get to the truth, which has been handled quite loosely by his Jewish accusers. So what do we do with this? Most of us have not been on trial for our faith and will likely make it through our lifetime without doing so. So while our faith has not been on trial in a courtroom, we could perhaps say that in the court of public opinion, the opinion of your neighbor, that coworker, extended family, in the court of public opinion, your faith is on trial. Or even just the ideas of Christianity, our hope, our confidence is on trial. We need to be a people who are not afraid to zero in on truth. Don't be afraid to ask people something like, hey, why do you think that's true? Not because you're looking for a fight, but because you know it's the truth ultimately that frees the unbelieving mind and the paths of faulty thinking. 
So don't be afraid to go after truth. For example, you have a neighbor whose family might be falling apart because of his drinking. And in a low moment, he's kind of bemoaning to you out there in the driveway, I just can't stop drinking. After all, my father was a drunk. What's the use? It's going to ruin my life too. And there you stand as a Christian, somewhat compassionate for this kind of brokenness. And the greatest need in that moment really isn't to debate the theories of genetic disposition or the best steps for overcoming addiction. How about like just aiming at truth? And when they're saying there's no use, it's over, it's going to ruin me, I'm a slave to it, maybe you could just say, but do you really think that's true? Because I believe there's hope. I believe God has given us some means by which we could overcome this. A coworker says to you, I used to go to church, but found they're all a bunch of hypocrites. Immediately, your defenses go up. You know they know you go to church. So you feel like they're saying you're a hypocrite, though they're probably not. So why not just say, boy, do you think that's always the case? And see how doors open up when you call for a reckoning with what is true. Paul had no qualms, and of course he's in a legal setting, but he has no problem getting at what's true, pointing out what's not true. But he's doing that when we step back, seeing the big picture, in order to present the truth of the gospel, ultimately through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I think there's something here for us to learn, that we can be people who not only aim for truth ourselves, but constantly kind of urge other people to reckon with things that are true. Remember, we're in a world that despises absolutes. They're insisting that truth is relative. What's true for you may not be true for me. And so we've redefined truth into just like a a fluid kind of feel. It will be helpful. It will be aiming at gospel freedom, as Christ declares, that you, you emphasize what is true and allow ultimately the truth, which is God's truth always, to set them free. Is your witness concerned with truth? Question number two, as we consider this man, Paul, standing before the unbelieving governor, Felix, what is Felix learning of this guy? What does he perceive of him and his faith? We should ask ourselves the second question. Is your witness peaceful in manner? Is it peaceful in its manner? And I say in manner because our message may not always be peaceful. We'll see that again in a little bit. Jesus came to bring a sword, he said, to divide. That's what truth does. That's what Jesus does. That's what that cross does in human history. It divides those who will bow before this Lord and Savior and those who will not. So our message may at times be divisive by nature of it being true. But our manner should be one of peace, compassion, love. Verse 12, in Paul's argument against being a 
rebel rouser. He says, they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Verse 18, similar language. They found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. He said, I wasn't causing problems. That's not what I'm called to. I'm not called to overthrow Rome. And the previous Roman ruler has already concluded that. Paul exemplifies a beautiful blend of insisting on truth in that first question, but in a peaceful way. In a way that doesn't drive people off or or turn them off to even conversation on the topic. Be someone who is willing to engage, not on the defensive because they don't like your faith or your God, but, but on that joyful offensive. I know what's true. I've tasted living water. I want them to know it. Be careful when you engage the unbeliever. They're not the enemy, even if they attack your faith. Even if they use words like hypocrite or nonsense or old-fashioned, that's okay. Their rejection of truth doesn't make it any less true. You have nothing to be defensive about. To borrow from the old British saying, keep calm and witness on. All right? Just, Just endure that heat that may come and realize it's not really aimed at you. It's aimed at what you believe and who you believe in. Blessed are the peacemakers. And Paul's point is the general approach with some biblical studies that we could kind of look at almost exceptions. The general approach is we are a peaceful people advancing a kingdom that is not of this world but can greatly transform this world. Peaceful in manner. Felix would have at least recognized by Paul's testimony, by lack of evidence to the contrary, by the witness of his subordinate, uh, the soldier who had sent Paul to Caesarea, he'd recognize this guy is not a problem to Rome. The Jews are making a big stink about this because of their theological differences. He saw Paul as a peaceful, yet extremely confident man when it comes to the truth. Question number three, is your witness committed to God? And we should say from our text, to the word that he gave us. So is my witness expressing to the unbeliever in some way that they would perceive that I am a follower of God and his word is what guides my life? Paul openly speaks of his worship of God and the authority of God's word in making his defense about being a rebel rouser. Look at verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Verse 14. This I confess that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. And then he adds this, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. 
I think we need to get confident in almost feeling a little bit stumped by unbelievers. And just know in those moments when it's not making sense to them and you don't seem to have the answer to convince them, you just say, you know what? I'm just trying to show you that I'm trying to follow what God has told me to do to live in a way that pleases him. There may be times when you're talking with an unbeliever and you'll just have to say, listen, I, I know you might not understand everything I'm saying to you, but I just believe God has given us his word in the Bible that tells us how to live. So that's, that's why I'm trying to communicate this on this issue or this difference in my life. You just default to it, it's, it's God and his word. Hide behind that. Oh, I think you'll get better at conversations and, and having answers, but don't be afraid to just default to, I'm just trying to follow what God has told me in the Bible. Because after all, we believe the word is powerful and it will accomplish what God sent it forth to do. You know, when, when your coworkers hear you just happen to mention in describing your weekend that I was gathering with my church family on Sunday, and then we went and did this and this, that, that's, that's laying a foundation that there's something about you that they could perceive that has to do with, they might think, religion. But hopefully, as they form a greater perception of you, they'll, they'll associate you with some kind of believer, some kind of follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple who believes that the Bible isn't just an old book of stories, but it's, it's a light that guides the way we live. Some of those practical word pictures in the Bible are great to, to lay in the understanding of an unbeliever. You could tell them the Bible is a system of religious codes for right living and holiness, and you'd be completely accurate, but why not say, I just believe God has given me light that shines in the darkness of this world. It's hard to know how to live, but I think God's given me some light. Steer them to God and to the word that he has given to us. When they're talking about their crazy life, raising teenagers or something, you might be able to say, hey, listen, I don't always get it right raising kids either. But I'm just telling you, I'm confident that God has given us some direction on how to do this. Just, just, just remind people that this is what you're about. You're a worshiper of God who believes the word that he's given to you. You might be able to tell that neighbor what they already know. Hey, listen, you and I don't agree on all these issues. I, hey, friend, we've talked politics and these issues before, and I know we see things differently. But, but listen, I love you, man, because God tells me in his word that more important than fighting you on those issues is loving you as a neighbor. Have, have you heard of that good Samaritan language? That comes from the Bible I read. And you remind them that you're there for them. You want to have this relationship. And yet you do feel you have a compass, an anchor, a guide in God's word. On that question, we ask ourselves, how many of my neighbors, how many of my coworkers, how many of my classmates would know at least something 
of my following Jesus and my allegiance to his word. Maybe they're getting there. That's good. That's why we're asking the question. We want to know how people perceive our Christian life and faith. Maybe they just know you as one of the better neighbors than others. You're a good person and they don't know why. Well, start praying about how God would let you introduce the why. Because that's where we're heading as we're called to be witnesses. Number four, is your witness confident in the resurrection? Verse 15 is an interesting verse for us to look at. Paul says that he has this hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Resurrection came up in his previous defenses. It'll keep coming up. It's getting to the heart of the matter. Paul's not really concerned about the charges of stirring up a riot or being the leader of some crazy cult. He kind of dismisses them really quickly by saying, no, that's not me. That's not what I'm doing. Here's the issue. And those men even believe it too, that there will be a resurrection. And that's significant. It will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust, implying some kind of accountability, some kind of judge. And there's two themes here that must be included ultimately somewhere in our witness, and they are hope, Paul says that up front, having a hope in God, that's you. And Peter tells us to be ready to give an answer, to defend that hope, to explain it. So hope should be a part of how you're perceived as that religious guy at the office, as that neighbor that seems to go to church every Sunday, or maybe they know you as a Christian. Hope should be there in their perception of you. This hope in God that there will be a resurrection. So hope is one theme, and life is another theme in our witness. Hope is always attractive, so exude hope in your witness, and life is always the intriguing issue of the moment. People are always ready to talk about what's going on in their lives right now. This is the stuff that presses and squeezes and causes people to question. So recognize that at the heart of our gospel, we're addressing hope and life. Oh, they could tune in and figure out how to have their best life now. But hopefully we can give a little more than that. Hopefully they could hear from us about new life in Christ and a full life through Christ. We have the gospel. It's hope and it's life. So is our witness confident in the resurrection, characterized by a hope in God that we live by faith in Jesus? Let someone hear from you that faith in Christ, that turning away from a life of sin is actually turning to eternal life in Christ. Question number five, is your witness consistent with behavior? Obviously, this question speaks to the significance of Christian ethics, how we go about living out what we say we believe. 
Let's see how Felix would have perceived Paul. Verse 16, Paul says, Because he knows of hope in God and that there will be a resurrection, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul just lays it right out there. I'm going to work hard at making sure there's nothing that I can think of that I've done to sin against God and nothing that I've done to sin against man. Conscience clear of all those offenses. Hypocrisy is a big issue among unbelievers in their thoughts of the church. And we might as well not deny that. It's a fool's errand to try to convince them otherwise with just your words because they probably anecdotally have some key examples that you would agree with are very hypocritical. Someone who said they were a Christian and maybe they knew at home it was a complete horror. Maybe they lived through a Christian home, so-called, and were terribly abused by a man who was a deacon in the church or a pastor. So there's no use in you trying to defend that charge and say, well, that's not true. You're not just saying that the blanket statement is true. You're just getting to the heart of the matter by saying, this is what God has said. A follower of Jesus should abide by what God has said. His life should match the words he says he believes. And you might agree with them that there is hypocrisy. You might agree with them that you at times can be hypocritical and fearful of having your image tarnished by the flaws of sin. But then you can just explain to them for every sinful hypocrisy that you've practiced, your Savior's work is sufficient to forgive that. And while you don't want to be a hypocrite, there's forgiveness for that. And for every other sin you've committed. And now you're unfolding the gospel by just sharing your story of how again and again you find forgiveness in Christ. We have to be consistent in our behavior. Paul would go on in verse 17 to speak of the alms that he was bringing to the church. Now it wasn't all only his money that was being given. He was bringing that collection from the churches. But it is time and sacrifice to come in generosity for the believers in Jerusalem. Then there's an interesting twist at the end of our story, verse 26. Felix leaves Paul in prison. Verse 26, at the same time, Felix hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. He'd call Paul in once in a while to have a little talk. Probably was interested in some of those things, but it was kind of a ploy to remind Paul, hey, if you want to get out of here, you know, kind of grease the skids a little bit and this would move along quicker. It was kind of the, the way things worked. And our text ends with Paul still in prison. It wasn't the means Paul was going to use to accomplish the end that he may have thought was good. He's a man of integrity. And Felix would have learned that conversation by conversation when the the subtle hints at bribery just don't go over. And Paul wants to talk about deeper things. Felix would have gathered from this man that he was committed to his faith, not just because of his words, 
but because of the way he lived his life. We're reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Philippians unfolds the same idea in chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Your ethics matter. The biggest fight will not be convincing the world that their ethics are wrong. Your biggest fight will be standing for what is right and being the light. That needs to be seen. It's a beautiful echo to the words of truth that we speak in our witness. Question number six. Is your witness focused on faith? Is your witness focused on faith? This gets to the essence of what we might call bridge building. We're, we're trying to figure out how to, how to get the gospel to unbelievers. And, and we, could, we could tie tracks to bricks and throw them through windows. That'd be attention-getting, Right? And they'd probably want to know what's on that. If it's that important, that has to be launched through my window. You know, we could have all kinds of bizarre methods, but ultimately, Acts is unfolding that all these people that put faith in Jesus are God's plan to make the good news known because they're just going around talking about how good God was to them in forgiving their sin. So, as we think of sharing our faith, we're trying to figure out how to make these relationships and how to have these conversations and, and to be able to talk to people. So we call that building a bridge. And this ultimately gets in the conversations of, well, what do we really mean by outreach? Is it the same as witnessing? Is outreach different from witness? Is witness different from evangelism? And it almost does help to kind of agree to what those terms are. Certainly when we talk about outreach, we're just talking about a broad word that has to do with what are the ways that we put ourselves in position to be able to share the truth of the gospel. And in having those conversations and in defining those words, this, this element of faith has to enter the conversation. Our witness is incomplete if there's not an end goal. So there is a goal toward which the conversations are moving. Even if it's month by month and year by year as you, you happen to have a few minutes with that coworker at different times throughout a week. There is an end in mind for the relationship you're cultivating. Perhaps with that neighbor. It may have started off poorly. You know, you moved in and they didn't like that moving truck parked in front of their house and they were mad from the start. Strike one against you. You've done nothing wrong, and yet here you are working to cultivate this relationship. There is a loving purpose for investing the time to build a bridge into someone's life. And the end goal, the, the end in mind, the loving purpose are generally the same. We want to share living water. We've tasted it. 
and it's refreshing and it's satisfying and we want them to know about it. Just like the Mexican restaurant you ate at last week and it was really good and you're telling people about it. That's the prime example of what it means to have a witness. We're just really pumped about something and so we share it. And they might say, no, I don't like Mexican food. No, I don't like church. But that's okay. You haven't lost. You've been successful. You've been obedient. You've accomplished your calling as a witness. And who knows if that seeming attitude of not caring really was pricked or provoked by your words, by your joy, by your manner. Is your witness focused on faith? In Paul's case, we get through the defense in most of the chapter, and then Paul or, or Felix decides to, to just kind of hold off on the moment, hit the pause button. The Jews go back to Jerusalem. Paul goes to prison, and he's just going to wait. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. It's not, it's not anymore about, well, the Jews said this, and Paul's going to defend himself. It's not about, how do I get out of prison? Paul comes, and he, and he talks about faith in Jesus. Now imagine using those very words, faith in Christ Jesus, and what that would mean if you sat down at lunch with a coworker and, and used that very language. They, that might be completely foreign to them. That's, that's the world you live in. That's why you need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to be obedient to the word, this whole book of Acts that's just pushing us towards getting out there and being a witness we have to start thinking, what would verse 24 look like in my context? How would I actually share my faith in Jesus? That's why we're studying the word. So we'll come to it and be confronted with things like that. Paul knew what he was going to do, and, and we need to know. We need to be focused on faith. Finally, Number seven, is your witness convicting with context? Is it convicting with context? Verse 25, after speaking about faith in Christ Jesus, we read, and as he reasoned, as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Enough for now. This is getting uncomfortable. I don't mind your story and testimony of how you've gone around and proclaimed this good news to Gentiles and, and they too could be family of God. And I hear how your laws guide a righteous life, but judgment and guilt, Let, let's just cut it out for now. Guards, take them away. We understand what's going on there. That's the convicting part. Felix perceived in the life and testimony of Paul, conviction. And we have to embrace that. 
We may not like it, and we have to separate that from being offensive in our manner. But the reality is there is something to our witness that should ultimately have a point to it. And by that I mean a, a pricking point, a stab, a, a sense of, oh, what do I do with this? It's convicting. It was convicting because Felix and Drusilla were not righteous people. They did not practice self-control in their multiple marriages, in their idolatrous living, in their immorality. And now they are hearing about a judgment that all men will face. And it put an end to the conversation. And you have to be ready for that. You have to know that somebody's going to say to you eventually, listen, I've told you before, I don't want to hear about it. Don't bring this up anymore. And you're going to have to recognize, okay, you've done what the Lord has asked you to do. You're hearing the echo that the truth of Jesus brings a sword, it divides. And by the Holy Spirit's prompting, decide how exactly you will respond to that, to that slammed door in your face. But recognize that will happen. The gospel will ultimately be convicting because it's not, the gospel is not just add Jesus and life is good. The gospel is you have sinned against a holy God and that God has made a way for you to be right with him. It's bad news followed by good news. There's conviction there. But I say conviction with context. What does that mean? It's, it's an odd way to say it, admittedly. The context, though, is Paul reasoned about righteousness. He reasoned about self-control. He reasoned about a coming judgment. What this means is that Paul led them through a series of thoughts. And the word reason there is the, the Greek verb that if I said it, you'd immediately know the word in English, dialogue. And if you just put a Greek ending on there, dialogue, it would, it would kind of work. Greek and English, same letters. They just switched it over to English, dialogue. It's this engagement of back and forth. Paul reasoned about righteousness. He was asking them questions, making them think, but he was leading them as if taking a child by the hand to an obvious conclusion. Righteousness, talking about that back and forth. Then he's reasoning about self-control and then the consequence of not being righteous and self-controlled. Judgment to come. Unfolding that if there is such a thing as something that's right, there must be someone who decides what's right. Someone who might hold us accountable for what is right. And, and through all that reasoning, he led them to conclusions that they would have to face, that they'd have to stare at. And it's an, it's an interesting aspect of our witness that we need to take into account. A reasoning, helping someone draw their own conclusion about what has to be done or at least where they stand before God. But it was, done, it was done carefully. It was done with that person. Now, 
Someone might say, well, I could go to places in Scripture where they just said, thus says the Lord, and a bony prophetic finger was pointed, and, and you're right. Even in the book of Acts, Peter stands up at Pentecost and says, you, with wicked hands, crucified the Holy One. Not a lot of reasoning there. Not like, hey, what do you think of this? It's just the bold declaration. At times that may happen, but when you think of the relationships with unbelievers you have, I would suggest that a study in Acts 24 might be helpful to you to understand you are not the Holy Spirit that needs to bring the conviction. You are a mouthpiece that just speaks the truth. And you can talk about righteousness with someone. And you can talk about, well, what do you think is right? Or how would you define what's right or wrong? And you can engage them because you have nothing to lose. You're standing on what's true. And maybe by dialoguing, maybe by trying to think where this person is and what they need to hear, you can lead them to conclusions that might allow then them to see God's word is true and right. I'm not righteous, not as righteous as I thought. I'm not as good of a person as I maybe thought I was. What if there is judgment to come? We should not be afraid to speak truth that may sting. However, our goal must not be to sting people with truth. Okay? We should not be afraid to speak the truth that might be painful, convicting, offensive. But it shouldn't be our goal to cause pain to be offensive by speaking truth. There's a difference there, and it gets to our heart. It gets to the motive. And I think we could go to Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in John 4 and recognize there was some stinging truth. When Jesus says, I'll give you water and you'll never have to draw again, and the woman's excited about that, and Jesus says, well, go and bring your husband. And she says, oh, I don't have a husband. And we might think the next words are stinging. Yeah, I know, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now isn't your husband. We might, we might interpret that as like a gotcha moment. Oh, yeah, I know how bad you are. It wasn't that. But the truth stings a little. It's like, uh, yes. So the truth stung, but clearly in that context, that is not the point. Jesus didn't go to the well to sting or zing a sinner. He went there to offer living water that satisfies to a woman who knew nothing of the fullness of peace and joy. So conviction may come through our witness, but let it be in a context of Acts 24, reasoning, or John 4, the pursuit of seeing someone taste the same water that we've tasted. Be careful that the conviction an unbeliever feels is not from your judgmental condemnation, but from the, the truth of God's clear word to them. So how is your Christianity perceived? 
by the unbelievers around you? You might look through some of these questions and, and feel like you, you're seeing some progress here. Maybe there's a few areas of weakness. Our task now is with the help of this text and these questions to, to give ourselves to a thoughtful meditation of what can I do to be a more clear witness so that my testimony is valuable to the case. Some witnesses in certain cases, they may be a witness. They saw something, but it's really muddy. They're not real sure. I'm not sure how tall the person was, what color that car was. And the attorney's going to say, we, we don't need that. That'll just muddy the case. By God's grace, I would say, we don't want to be muddy witnesses. So let's make sure we're being perceived in a way that is an asset to our message. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul told the Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ. In other words, he has asked us to go in his place to another area and represent him well. We are ambassadors for Christ. And he says it this way, God making his appeal to sinners through us. Suddenly witnessing is elevated to, if I'm not doing this in the same way God does, I'm not doing this rightly. And the gospel shows us how God does it. While we were yet sinners, his enemies, Christ died for us. So dying to myself to engage the unbeliever is our task as we go from here this morning. It matters how your witness is perceived. Are you representing well God's merciful appeal to sinners? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. These ancient stories recorded for us from the life of Paul, other saints and believers, your fledgling church, and we learn from them. Because this is your inspired word preserved for us, we read it still today, and, it, and it's meant to shape us and to change us. And we've heard much about our witness and what to do and how to say in these past months, and, and today we, we look through the eyes of the unbeliever, and we see ourselves and we need to know, with the help of your Holy Spirit, if we're doing this well, if we are representing your heart and your message well. So help us to grow. Make us willing to improve, to change, so that we may truly be your ambassadors, standing in your stead and calling sinners to reconcile to the God that we know and love. And we do know and love you through our Savior Jesus, in whom we rejoice, in whom we give thanks, in whom we rest, and in whose name we pray. Amen.